This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 1st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Are Christians duty-bound to be socialists? In what faith traditions is that line of thinking most prevalent? Deidre McCloskey's forthcoming book, God in Commerce, takes on the thinking that Christians ought to eschew many of these social institutions that have created such vast wealth over the past two centuries. We spoke last month. You have a book that has been sent off. The title is... Well, I changed the title yesterday morning. Once it was called God and Mammon, and then I decided that's too confusing. I said, now it's called God in Commerce, Public Theology for an Age of Innovism. And so Innovism is your is your better word for capitalism. It is. I, I just really am so annoyed and and it, with with the word capitalism, not because it it's bad. I mean, after all, Forbes calls itself Forbes capitalist tool, and I, I kind of get it. But but it's 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 scientifically very inaccurate because it suggests to everyone, economists and non-economists, that the way we got rich was piling up bricks or BAs capital accumulation, whether physical or human. And that's not right. Of course, you need it. But it's the ideas, it's the creativity of humans released in the last couple of centuries that have made it worthwhile to have workers move from one place to another or land get exploited in some way or capital to be accumulated. So when we talk about uh, in, in particularly, uh, people who are Christians, yes, uh, or present themselves as Christians, yes. There's a big difference between uh, those two. So, why do you suspect so many theologians, people who've devoted their lives to yeah. understanding these faith these faith traditions better, um, are socialists? Well, they. They are, whereas the parishioners in Kansas are not, um, and even the even the pastors in I don't know in Wisconsin are not. But the kind of academic or or um, sort of chattering class of especially progressive Christians like I am, or even conservative Christians of a kind of sophisticated sort. The one particular um, theologian I have in mind is a wonderful Orthodox theologian, um, David Bentley Hart. They're to, to a man and woman, they're socialists, <laughs> which is to say they're hostile to this innovism. All right. So you and I had a had a chat in your office here at the Cato Institute, uh, and I'm so happy that you're here. But I'm trying was trying to poke holes in yeah the, the notion the notion that these people are sort of hanging their hat on that is yeah uh, it is it is good and right and correct for Christians to be socialists. Is that yeah, is, that's, that's what they believe they they they. They they take the Sermon on the Mount in its two forms as all there is to say about the relationship between the economy and spirituality. 
And it, that's just not very sensible, even as biblical um, um, scholarship, because the voice of Jesus, in, in certainly in the three synoptic gospels, is much less, well, look, he was in a commercial society. He's supposed to be a carpenter by one, one tradition. He didn't ask all the, the fishers to become fishers of men. He, 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 was, he was not hostile to the very idea of, uh, of money. He, was, he said, if, this, if he actually said it, we don't know for sure, the love of money is the source of all evil. And that I kind of agree with. So how do, how do these theologians then reconcile? One, there's a whole lot of Old Testament stuff that yep. uh, Jesus did not explicitly reject. Absolutely. Uh, and a whole lot of that has to do with proper stewardship of Ex- resources. Absolutely. Look, the, 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 the famous statement that you could make about our own Benjamin Franklin do you see a man diligent in his business? Business, he shall stand before kings, as Ben Franklin indeed did. And there's a great deal of praise for enter- enterprise of a kind of old-fashioned sort and uh, hard work, and 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 then to take your profits from your honorable profits from working hard and doing what customers want and 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 spending them in good ways so as you're suggesting the hebrew bible has a portrait of as you said the good steward the honorable rich man and there are plenty of portraits of this kind now of course there are a lot there are portraits too in 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 both books of um nasty people, you know, exploiting, exploiting widows and orphans, and they're damned and, and they're attacked by the prophets and so forth. But it's the case that Judaism and Islam are much less um, critical of the economy than is Christianity, especially Western Christianities against Orthodoxy, although that both Orthodoxy and Western are, are pretty much um, damning of profit and and all you got you ha- the rich man uh, is harder to get through heaven than to put a a camel through a needle's eye. By the way, that. Quotation is actually a misquotation. Uh, it's serious scholars of the matter believe that it's not a camel that goes through. It's a word very similar to camel in Aramaic, which means um, a thick thread. That's all it means. It doesn't mean a camel. Some somewhat different. It means rather. <laughs> uh, so. Uh... You know, in, in in my attempt to sort of poke holes in this in this idea, uh, so we're talking about the Old Testament. Yeah. In the New Testament, yeah, you have the parable of the three talents. We do indeed. That is uh, a parable of Jesus, mm-hmm. detailed in two places. Yep. In the Bible, um, 
this is about a father giving to his children some amount of wealth sure. and asking them to do something with it. That's right. And, and one just stores it in the ground and doesn't do anything. And he gets doesn't get any credit from his dad, whereas the guy who t- took his talent, and of course, to, uh, talent is a unit of money, not not what we think of the word to mean, and uh, invests it and does well. And there are lots of parables like that. Um, I, I don't want to come across as saying that Jesus was a salesman and he would approve of, I don't know, Donald Trump or something. But he, no, he, but he's, as I said before, he's in a commercial society. And very often the images he, he um, draws on, they're always pointing up. They're always pointing to heaven. I understand that. Um, but they're uh, friendly in a way that the Jewish tradition was, after all, he was a Jewish rabbi, so to speak, to work in the world, to enterprise. I mean, it's not, look, there are traditions in Christianity of extreme abstention from consumption. You, you be, uh, what is his name? St. Um, Anthony, I think it is, who's the, who's, who's the desert father who goes out into the desert and weaves baskets, and that's all he does. He doesn't, he's out of the world entirely. But there's another parallel tradition in Christianity, which is life-affirming, world-affirming even. And they operate in parallel. There's an ascetic tradition and a world-loving tradition and the world-loving tradition fits very well with um, with innovism. And, you know, Max Weber, people often think I'm just kind of a modern Max Weber, and that's not right, because I think Max Weber got it all wrong. And Max Weber took the ascetic side as the big, crucial step to um, the modern world. And that's just not very plausible as economic history, because we've always saved as humans, and there's nothing, we've always worked hard. So to the extent that Christianity is meant to present to you a framework in which we are to operate in relation to our fellow humans, yes. what do these theologians then believe is the proper relation that we are to have? Well, if, if the commercial society that we all well, uh, experience every day, if that is somehow inappropriate or uh, yeah, immoral. I know. Well, that's the trouble. Look, there are two parts to the Ten Commandments. The first three, is it? I think it's right, are about you should love your God with all your heart. And, and the next seven are about loving your, your neighbor as yourself. And those are connected. I don't think there's, I think it's completely clear that in a Christian life, they're, su- they're supposed to be and must be connected or you're just a fake. And so th- there's this, the, the I, actually, I haven't quite thought of it this way, but the, this is a good way to express it. The philosophy about um, 
the economy, or about theology, philosophy about theology. If it's if it doesn't acknowledge the facts of the world, the way people actually behave, it's sort of cheap. <laughs> it's easy. It's like um, various utopias since Sir Thomas More. Well, one of my questions to friends who uh, are Christian is, or, or really of any faith, is what does your faith demand of you that you really don't want to do? That's right. That's right. And what it, what uh, my faith as as a Christian demands of me, is that I love God with all my heart and soul, and I love my neighbors myself. But and these, as Jesus said, summarize the law and the prophets. But <laughs> they've got to be combined. Uh, actually, Maimonides, a great Jewish uh, philosopher of, of the 12th century in Spain, said, look, if all you do is study the Torah and pray all day and don't earn your living, you're shaming the Torah, he said. You must be, you have to be a, have a milk wagon or, or uh, uh, I don't know, be a carpenter or something. You've got to do something in the world. So the two sides, God and the world, have to be connected, and they have to illuminate each other. And if, you, if you're unrealistic about either side, this is a point that a philosopher friend of mine is making in a, in a new book of his, a guy named Schmitz, David Schmitz. If you just let yourself utopianize, let's see, let's make butter into money. Or let's <laughs> let's let's imagine that the only thing we need to worry about is distributing the national income. We don't need to worry about producing it. it that kind of it's loose thinking, and it's not helpful. Um, one of the great things about Christianity, as represented in the New Testament, seems to me, and and the Hebrew Bible too. Is its is its wonderful realism. David goes off the rails in his lust for Bathsheba, and has one of his generals killed. Essentially, um, Jesus's first miracle is to change the water into wine to keep the party going. <laughs> it's that kind of. Uh, interaction with the way people actually are that's charming about Christianity. I mean, it's its true, as I said, it's true of the, uh, of the Hebrew Bible, too. I think it's true of Islam, but I don't know enough about it. Your effort in this book, then, uh, if I understand you correctly, is to just convince your uh, fellow Christians who are studied uh, in this realm that there is no shame, or there is no immorality right. in serving your fellows in a system in which exactly. uh, there is private property. There exactly. Are this look, look, it drives me crazy. We've fallen into the business of when we see a person in uniform in the army, we say, thank you for your service. 
and they're allowed to get on the airplane before other people thank you for your service. As though you and I, who are employed, are not doing services. Wait a second, if I'm a housemaid and I clean up someone's house, what, what's, I mean, I'm giving a service. Um, that I'm paid for it is, is so is the soldier for that matter. But you know that that's the deal, and so this love of God through your love of your neighbor—that's that's the connection between the two. There, there is a wonderful statement by the founder of Quakerism, with whom you're familiar. Says you should see the inner light in every person, whether they be believers in the divinity of Christ or not. And that kind of love of neighbor, and then the rather notorious Quaker willingness to work in the world to do it, is honorable. There, There is a tendency of my clerical, I don't mean just religious, but academics and professors and, and, and you know, professors and, and journalists and all the scribblers, all of us scribblers, to, um, to view with a certain disdain people who work in the market. Now, right. right. No, no, when, when, <laughs> when we discussed this initially, I said I was a Quaker and that, uh, so, so it is, it is alien to me yeah. that people would oppose commerce yeah, I know. On, on, as a, as a concept. Look, in 1800, in a population of about 10 million of the United Kingdom, including Ireland, there were something like 20,000 Quakers. 20,000 out of 10 million. So it was really small. And yet, the companies you've heard of in Britain, Roundtree, Cadbury's, Barclays Bank, what's the other one, um, Lloyd's Bank, all four of those are Quaker enterprises, and there are a whole bunch of others. So, yes, indeed. And, and no one argues that Quakers are not sincere. These are people that were at the same time opposing slavery and were among the few opposing slavery. We Anglicans, you know, we often <laughs> had ownership of plantations in Barbados and so on, and we weren't about to oppose slavery. But 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 the Quakers were at the fore of the anti-slavery movement and, and we're at the fore, therefore, of liberalism. And in a wider sense, what I'm what I'm what I'm preaching in this book from the first page to the last is that we should be liberals in the 19th century sense as Christians. Christian liberalism and liberal Christianity, or liberalism in Christianity, both support each other. They're not just, well, <laughs> to put it another way, socialism is not a reasonable option for a Christian, in my opinion. People think it is. They think, oh, well, the state is charitable. It helps poor people. But if it makes poor people into serfs, keeps them as children. That's not what our Lord and Savior wants for us. Well, and, and generosity is uh, a lot easier when it's not your stuff. 
Exactly. And it's exactly. it's very hard to be generous if you don't have anything. Yeah, that's right. On, on, on both counts, you would want to be vigorously involved in the world and do well. Yeah, I tithe to my church. I give 10% of my income to my congregation, my, my Episcopal congregation in Chicago. And I'm able to do it because I'm well-to-do. Um, do send more money to make me more well-to-do, but <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I can do it. Whereas if I was straighted and very poor, I couldn't give as much to my church. So the book is very much about liberalism and explaining to people what it means. It doesn't mean what we think it means in the United States, which is moderate social democracy, the Democratic Party, to be more exact. And it certainly doesn't mean what it means in Latin America, which is pro-business laws enforced by the army. Um, it means what it means still on the continent of Europe, which is 19th century John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, type um, societies in which there will be no slaves, um, slaves to humans. We we're all slaves, as St. Paul says, to Christ Jesus. I understand that, and that's true. But we're not slaves to each other. And that's the big twist in Western thought in the 18th century, which now is worldwide. The twist is to say, we're no longer going to have these agricultural hierarchies of everyone having a master. Um, we're, we're going to stop having masters, that is, physically coercive husbands or um, slave drivers or states, for that matter. And that is a Christian message, I claim. Deidre McCloskey is author of many books, the next one of which is perhaps tentatively entitled God in Commerce. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.